Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, September 3rd. We begin with answers to your COVID-19 questions and myth-busting surrounding the virus. We are joined by University of Calgary Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Craig Janney. Next, we look at the work done by public health officials through the pandemic. We speak with a professor of philosophy about the importance of maintaining trust with the public as the crisis continues. Then the question of whether historically significant statues and monuments should be removed when the subject turns out to have a controversial past. We get the thoughts of Dwayne Bratt, political scientist with Mount Royal University. And finally, it's a chance to hear some great music, socially distanced, while raising money for a good cause. We find out the details on the High River District Healthcare Foundation's Big Screen Harvest Party. 7.09 now and uh, with back to school, we thought perfect time to bring on our expert to help answer all of your COVID-19 questions. Lots of them still coming into us and joining us once again for all the answers is Associate Professor at the Department of Microbiology, Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary, Dr. Craig Janney. Good morning, Dr. Janney. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us again. Still, people have questions as we continue to move through this thing. New questions, new things that people want to know about. I wanted to ask you, when kids come back from school, should they dump their clothes, their shoes, and everything and shower immediately as soon as they return to the house? No, not, probably not necessary. Unless you, you get informed that there was a, a, an outbreak or a high risk of exposure in the classroom, uh, we, we have to remember that most kids going to school are not going to see the virus in their day-to-day lives. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't mean there's zero risk, um, but transmission from clothes and shoes, really, really slim chances. So, no, uh, make sure they, they take their mask off, store it properly, wash their hands, absolutely do that, and then uh, get on to, to back enjoying life again. I want to ask you this because I know it's going to be a case-by-case basis as we continue and move through the school year. But, for example, one of the schools uh, in the city of Calgary had, uh, you know, mentioned that the admin staff had been quarantined, uh, but they were going to continue to open the school. Should parents be afraid if there was a known outbreak in a school but school is going on? I don't think so. I think actually, believe it or not, uh, I look at this as a good news story that they've identified who has potentially come in contact with the infected individual uh, and they've taken action and they've been very public about it. So nobody's hiding anything. Nobody's trying to minimize the numbers. So to me, this is showing that the system is working. Uh, we also had a, a school south of the city that's delayed opening because of a, uh, an exposure. So I think that this is, at least in my opinion, giving me confidence that we are catching the cases and we are contact tracing and we are making those dif- difficult decisions as is, as i said the case uh, of the school south of the city uh, they've delayed opening by, by a number of days so these are not easy decisions and i'm, I'm glad to see that they're being made so I, I think that should give us confidence that when cases do show up in a school uh, the right actions will be taken speaking of school texter just said could you please ask the doctor about food and covid because the cbe is trying to cancel all food food classes as in cooking classes in some of the schools. Yeah, so that we don't have any direct transmission. We've not really seen any foodborne transmission of COVID. The real problem becomes when we do a lot of common things. So for sharing common spoons or utensils, even if we're not eating, just that constant touching the same stuff in, for example, a given classroom or a kitchen-type environment. So we have to be a little bit careful about activities where people are going to be using the same thing over and over without cleaning in between. So I think it's more on the the students interacting with each other and their activities in the classroom rather than the r- actual risk of, of whether it's a cooking class or or some other uh, uh, 
non-standard, uh, you know, desk education. Here's a kind of a general question. How uh, positive are the experts that the COVID-19 tests are not testing positive from the common cold or flu? That's a great question. So uh, there have been a number of tests, not the ones used in Canada, but for example, the ones that were used in New York State uh, could not tell the difference between the two. So we do actually run tests between that. We we put in a sample that has the common cold and a a sample that has COVID, and we want to make sure those tests only light up the COVID sample. So in Canada, our tests are are quite rigorous, and, and we're very confident about it. But some of these other tests that have not been approved by Health Canada have shown some problems. So not an issue here, but definitely an issue in other places of the world. I think there's lots of confusion still about the whole masking issue, Dr. Janney, and you know, it continues as we send our kids back to school this week. So this texter saying, if most cases are minimal, as the doctor said this morning, why are we forcing children to wear masks and having these restrictions in place, especially when they're not really going to get infected and not spreading it? I guess there's two things to that. One, kids absolutely can get infected, and, and the growing evidence is up to at least a certain age, uh, uh, at least you know six, seven years old, um, they, they are spreading it as well, not only among other kids, but to the adults they contact in their lives, whether that be teachers, parents, grandparents, uh, any anybody that they may come in contact with. So that, that's our big concern, is that they do spread it and, and they do get sick themselves, although you know fairly mild, which is good news. They're absolutely right that there's very few cases in the community overall, which is why we are able to open schools safely. We're requesting the masks to ensure on those rare events when the virus is introduced to a classroom, and we know it will be because it is in the community, that it doesn't run through the school and we don't get 100 infections or 200 infections. These masks are going to allow us to keep their classmates safe when the virus is introduced into the school. So um, I I understand the, the, the concern, but this really is our best method to stop a large outbreak within these school systems. And I know we, we've asked you a lot of similar questions over the past few months, Dr. Jenny, and uh, we don't like to you know, force you to repeat yourself, but I think when it becomes uh, a case of uh, misinformation, it, it's important to underscore some things here. So I want to talk about this one question that has to do with COVID-19 deaths and the right. classification. I think there was some information released in the U.S., so social media has blown up in the past week or so. And here, here's one, and I'll just give this as an example, and it's kind of extreme. If somebody asymptomatic passes, uh, well, does a COVID-19 test and is positive, but they're asymptomatic, and then get in their car and have a car accident, would their death be classified as a death due to a vehicle accident or COVID-19? Yeah, I can't speak to other jurisdictions, but in Canada, absolutely not. So we're only counting COVID-19 deaths when people succumb to the illness. So respiratory disease, respiratory distress. There is some what we would term cardiovascular uh, deaths, so heart attack, but that's also when they are hospitalized for COVID. So COVID can affect other organs such as heart and kidney, um, but these are directly attributable to a, a, a severe illness from the virus, not because of accidental death at home or, or as the example in a car. Um, so we're actually pretty pretty tight on the restrictions here in Canada on how we classify a death. Um, and the numbers in Canada, if anything, still tend to underestimate perhaps a little bit because um, we're, we're capturing all the ones, for example, within the hospitals and, and long-term care facilities. But it doesn't mean we, we count every single death uh, uh, th- that is COVID. Um, so I think our numbers are very accurate here in Canada. Because there's been a few articles that have really confused people, I think, you know, about who, who what death is being recorded yeah. as a COVID death and if there was an underlying 
condition and yet they catch COVID and die, how it all is recorded. And it seems to be, uh, you know, a way for people to argue, oh, it's not that serious. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I, I understand the argument with the underlying conditions that, that some of the people who have succumbed were quite sick. But, you know, we, we don't know for somebody, for example, with a, a, a progressive lung disease may still have had three, four, five years to look forward to it and COVID cut that short. Um, so, yeah, these are COVID-induced deaths in people that may have had underlying conditions, but the, the death was brought around and, and brought earlier because of COVID. Can we hold you over for another segment here? Of Dr. course. Jenny? Good stuff. More of your questions for Dr. Craig Jenny, infectious disease specialist with the University of Calgary. Send them in at 403-974-8255. 717, helicopter traffic time for West District by Truman, Calgary's newest and best master-planned community. Now, continuing with Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the U of C. Dr. Janney, thanks for sticking on with us to answer questions. You, you, uh, we've yet to stump you, and we've been having you on since the begin- beginning of this pandemic. Um, I wanted to talk to you about a quote I saw from you recently saying that you were very confident. No, it's a good quote. You were very confident that there would be a vaccine for COVID-19 available in Canada by late spring, early summer 2021. Why are you so confident? Well, we're seeing fantastic news from some of these clinical trials. So so none of these current vaccines have been approved, but we're seeing positive results after their phase two and even early phase three trials, which is the final phase before we approve a vaccine. So there's encouraging news. Uh, It looks very strongly that we may have the first of the vaccines approved in the U.S. this calendar year, which, again, is quite promising. Um, I'm also encouraged that Health Canada has indicated they're going to uh, not simply approve a vaccine that the U.S. has already approved. We are going to demand our own safety data. So that brings in another layer of confidence uh, with, with the vaccine process here in Canada. So I do anticipate us getting a vaccine approved in Canada early 2021. Um, And then in the background, we've already gone out and purchased syringes and needles and started distributing them across Canada. And we've pre-ordered or at least put in a a reserve order for four different types of vaccine from four different suppliers so that if any one of those is approved by Health Canada, we are on the top of the list to start receiving doses of vaccine in Canada. So I think all of the pieces are in place to ensure we can get a fairly early access to a vaccine that we have demonstrated by our own standards to work and to be safe. So I think if I, if I could dream up a perfect scenario for developing a vaccine, I think we're very close 
uh, to what would be perfect. Uh, all of the pieces have fallen in and the right decisions appear to have been made, uh, at least here in Canada. I hate to have to ask you this, and I do it a little tongue-in-cheek, but a little seriously too. Is Bill Gates going to be involved in the vaccine uh, process here in Canada? So uh, the, the, the real answer is I don't know. It depends on which vaccines are approved. So he has contributed to, to some of the vaccine efforts, but not all of them. Uh, we have to keep in mind that the four vaccines we've purchased are all private companies. Uh, some of them are quite reputable, Johnson & Johnson, and the other ones are, are companies that are brand new uh, but, but have been building vaccines, for example, for, for animal use now for years and have adapted their cutting-edge technology to a new human vaccine. Uh, and that's why we, we in Canada have demanded Health Canada safety uh, uh, clearance. So I, I think everything's in place to actually not care about who's making it, but simply to purchase the best vaccine and the safest vaccine for Canadians. Okay, good stuff. Nice to have some optimism, nevertheless. Yes. Let's talk about, you know, we're all wearing face coverings, and the big question is, is a face shield as safe uh, as protection as a face mask? So the, the, the requirements in the city are, yes, they're interchangeable. Uh, there is some emerging data suggesting that the face shield may be more protective for the person wearing it, which is good news. Um, the, the question is, in your given situation which one is more practical which one is more comfortable um, I've had to wear face shields in the lab and, and I personally I don't find them comfortable I, I'd much rather wear a mask all day than a, than a face shield but uh, by the city of Calgary guidelines and, and even many of the school boards uh, their instructions are a mask or face shield so uh, you know if you're more comfortable in a in a shield please go ahead and wear that Squeezing in one more question, yes or no, do experts have any concerns about long-term effects of children breathing in CO2? Uh, with regards to masks, uh, mm-hmm. no. Uh, we've done a lot of testing on that. We do not see any changes in, for example, a, a healthy individual. If we put a mask on even for hours, their blood oxygen is the same as whether they're not wearing a mask or not. And, and same thing, their blood CO2 gases are the same. So, so there's no impact on the actual gases in your bloodstream or in your body. So wearing a mask, uh, you know, really does not impact that. And my kids wear masks uh, when they've been going shopping and, you know, sending one out the door here in an, in an hour to school and he's taking his mask with him. So no concerns whatsoever with that. Dr. Janney, thanks for your time this morning. We appreciate it. You're welcome, guys. Take care. You too. This is Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. Well, with most Canadian health experts expecting a second wave of the COVID-19 pandemic this winter, will Canadians continue to trust the advice of public health experts? Has the confusion over back-to-school plans eroded some of the trust we've had? With more, we're joined this morning by a professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Guelph, Maya Goldenberg. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's talk about the importance of us trusting our health officials, particularly right now, and and what might happen should some of that trust be eroded as we move into the winter months. Well, our public health officials are supposed to be the sources of of the best information, the information that we need to make good choices uh, during the pandemic to keep ourselves uh, and our communities safe. Um, But the same way we need to trust uh, public health, they also need to be perceived as trustworthy. So I want to make sure that this is understood as a a two-way issue. Uh, Public health needs to keep giving reliable information, and um, the the public should be able to uh, assess it as as trustworthy. And these public health officers, they have the credentials and, uh, you know, they know their stuff. But it's got to be an interesting dynamic within their position because they they're here to serve the public but they also 
serve the government. And, and, and that's a, a bit of a conundrum, isn't it? Right. And that's a difficult position that public health officers are put in. On the one hand, they are part of the government body. On the other hand, as scientists, they're supposed to be removed from the politics. They're certainly not using their public health credentials to further a political agenda. Until now, we saw good examples of, of this. Dr. Hinshaw's done a really good job of making herself present and available to the public, and there's been a lot of public trust in her for that reason. She wavered a little bit uh, over back to school when, uh, when there was that uh, walk back on social distancing around classrooms. I know that's a big issue in Alberta right mm-hmm. now. Um, and why that was a big issue is that there was a perception, whether it's true or not, we, it still remains to be seen, but there was a perception by the public that her role as a scientist and her duty towards, uh, towards the government were getting uh, too close. She's supposed to be giving us the most accurate scientific information, not furthering government agenda. And there was suddenly this moment where the public became concerned that, that the roles were being blurred. Yeah, 100%. You're correct on that. I think that is, you know, right now, it still is. We're just not quite sure. Perhaps was Jason Kenney behind some of that messaging and, and did that erode a little bit of the trust? So what, what what, did the, what do the health officials need to do moving forward? Just continue to to say, you know, what they say in terms of scientific evidence, but also do they need to continue to point out, I serve at the, the behest of, of the government and politicians? Um, they need to be clear about what's informing their directives. If, if, if uh, Dr. Hinshai knows maintaining that she wasn't doing anything sort of questionable when she stepped back on social distancing, well, it sounds like the public needs a little more explanation of why that is the case, because we have heard a lot about social distancing since the start of the pandemic. So this is her opportunity to come out and uh, justify herself. And as uh, a public figure, it is reasonable for public figures to need to justify themselves uh, when the public demands some kind of accountability. So this is her moment to regain that trust by explaining her actions. Uh, coming out and saying, I work for the government is not going to restore the government, restore that. Um, and I'm sure she wouldn't say something like that. She would probably want to say something like, I, I, am, I am, of course, employed uh, by the government. I, I advise the government, but here are the checks that are in place to make sure that I'm not merely uh, parroting a, a political agenda, that I'm actually serving the public interest with uh, rigorous and helpful scientific advice. The public health officer and the position, this has to be, an, it's cliche to say unprecedented, but it is an unprecedented time in that they're thrust so much into the, the forefront. And I, I challenge a lot of people to name the public health officer of their, uh, you know, province over the past several years. Yeah. Besides right now, when you mentioned a Bonnie Henry or a Dina Hinshaw, could it be part of the issue is just the amount of information? Like we're hearing from these officers several times a week and at the beginning of the pandem- pandemic every day. Uh, it, it goes both ways. On the one hand, the amount of public exposure that our public health and chief medical officers have been getting have actually um, resulted in a noticeable increase in public trust uh, towards scientific experts, experts and scientific bodies. There's there's a lot of tracking of these kind of things, uh, uh, polls that are done on how much do Canadians trust scientists, like that kind of thing. And it was noticed in the early months of, of the COVID pandemic lockdown, that there was an increase in, in public trust. So when people said, who do you get your COVID information from? Who do you rely on for, 
for health advice, there were more people saying public health offices than than prior. So that was a that was a good thing for uh, for. Uh, uh, experts and for scientists who, who've suffered over the years. Right? Mm-hmm. It seems like there's a constant degrading of trust in scientists and, and trust in in experts. So th- this seems like a good thing. So putting yourself out there uh, makes you more exposed. It can increase trust uh, and uh, this feeling of uh, kinship between the public and the scientific officer. On the other hand, if you don't do it well, it can also uh, engender mistrust, like we see this misstep around around school uh, school um, reopening. Mm-hmm. So they need to walk a fine line. They need to embrace the publicity because it's actually helpful for the public health agenda, but they also need to do it really, really well. I would agree with you. And, and a distrust in, in science as a whole seems to be on the rise of late, not just the scientists. But you also, you were quoted in a recent article in the Toronto Star talking about why this trust is so important too as we move forward and get towards a vaccine. Um, public health can't really do its work unless they get a lot of buy-in from the public. So the, the work, so my, my background is I do, I do work on vaccine hesitancy. I've spent years looking at why it is that, uh, that some parents are not trusting of recommendations around vaccinating their children. And, uh, and it always points to an issue of, of public trust. Public health cannot do its work unless they've got buy-in from the public. So it's not just about having really the best science, but it's also about convincing the public that their directives are the ones that that they need to follow. So that was true before uh, COVID, and it's going to remain that way. So if you are somehow squandering the public trust, let's say getting getting scientists involved in scandals or giving direction on school reentry that seems overly political, then you lose that public trust and you need that later on when we do, you know, when flu season comes around and we're going to want people to get influenza vaccine, uh, when a COVID vaccine comes out and we're going to want high coverage of that, you need to bank on that public trust. And, and public trust is a precarious thing. You have to you have to earn it and you have to maintain it. Thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. That is Professor Maya Goldenberg in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Guelph. And I can't say enough good things about Dr. Dina Hinshaw. I mean, and, and, and to, I my, agree. to my point in my, uh, I think the, the second last question we had with Maya there, um, when you're on that much, you're going to, you know, be, you know, maybe make a misstep or have things misconceived because there's so much information out there. And she really has been so solid. And really at the beginning of this, when there was so much confusion and we just didn't know what was happening, there she was, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, as the voice of reason here in this province. And I think because she spoke so calmly and Mm -hmm. slowly and with such authority, it really helped us all feel better and and feel positive and and know that we were in good hands. And I think we still are. And who would want to have that job? Ugh. She earned a bonus. I Somebody think, get her an ice cream cake. <laughs> You're not kidding. It's 617. It's time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, a community connected to its city. Following McLeod Trail out of Walden and Chaparral, you've got an 18-minute drive into downtown. The only real slowdown that I'm seeing is uh, just past Heritage Drive for that ongoing bridge work. A little bit bumpy getting across that bridge deck, but uh, Elbow Drive, 14th Street, both great options up to Glenmore. Blackfoot Trail, I'm seeing a delay-free drive so far all the way between Deerfoot and Southland Drive. Deerfoot Trail itself, a nine-minute drive southbound off the QE2 from Airdrie down towards Memorial Drive. And northbound lane sitting pretty wide open so far from Stony Trail out of Mackenzie Town 
and Mackenzie Lake up towards 17th Avenue, but we'll definitely keep an eye on it. It's been pretty busy this whole week. Don't settle for less than 99% coverage. With TELUS, you get far better mobile coverage in Alberta than with Shaw's Freedom Network. Visit TELUS.com slash network for the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter. I'm Brady Howard. Well, the statue of Sir John A. Macdonald in Montreal, like those in some other cities, was recently targeted by activists because of his association with the Indian residential school system. It was pulled down and destroyed. There's now much debate in Canada about what to do with these statues. They're so offensive to some, and in others, it's a piece of history that we need to always remember. So to talk about this issue, we're joined this morning by Dwayne Bratt, political scientist at Mount Royal University. Good morning, Dwayne. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Huge debate online, particularly curious as to your thoughts. Is it an attempt to erase history or do we need to do something to acknowledge these controversial figures? Well, people will say, well, it's not about erasing uh, history. Uh, you know, there'll still be portraits of John A. Macdonald in, in the House of Commons um, and in, in the history textbooks. But it is attempt at, at erasing at least public history. And there is a lot of value to statues as a as a form of of teaching about history because not everybody takes history classes uh, in depth and uh, naming schools and roads is a way of bringing people back to to life and, and getting an acknowledgement. Now, yes, um, <clears throat> McDonald was involved in residential schools, but they existed up until the 1990s. And so do we uh, list every single prime minister and take down every statue of, of prime ministers? We've got other problematic uh, mm. statues. You know, I referenced the, the famous five statue that we have in, in Calgary. Um, both Emily Murphy and, and Nellie McClung um, promoted eugenics, uh, which was a popular view at the time that we now look back um, with, with horror. Do we take down that statue. So it's a very complex question. Who's, who makes those decisions? Is it just a group of individuals taking matters into their own hands, as we saw in, in Montreal? Mm-hmm. Or is it a longer-term discussion, as we saw in renaming the Langevin block, for example, mm-hmm. or replacing, for that matter, the, the Canadian flag? What, you know, as far as uh, the treatment, we can do it to, to kind of keep everybody happy. Would it be a, a case well, of... Well, <laughs> that, that's, that's a the thing. problem with the premise of your question. You're not going to keep but everybody happy. I mean, but I mean can, can we make amends by putting a plaque and a description at the base of these statues? <laughs> but, but how, and, and that's the problem. Um, so some people have tried to suggest that. Um, but the question is, well, they're not going to be able to go into depth on that. and They're not going to be able to explain, you know all the positive things and all the really, really bad things uh, that someone did in their, in their lifetime. And so as a result, there shouldn't be a statue at all. Um, I don't think we can, we can please anybody for this. And, of course, a lot of um, issues around statues is coming from other parts of the world, particularly the United States. Um, and so, you know, I've heard that, well, they put up McDonald's statue because of his treatment of Indigenous people. And I don't believe that at all. The statue in Montreal was put up after he died. It wasn't like putting up statues of Confederate soldiers in the 1920s as a way of uh, sending a message to the black population of the United States. Uh, But these are complex things. Uh, History 
I wouldn't say changes, but our interpretations of history start to change. And we're also applying 21st century standards sure. to debates that were going on, in this case, in the, in the 19th century. I also don't think that the answer is you know, just don't name anything after anybody. <laughs> it's not just that we do this in politics. Every field in society does this. So you think of sports trophies and you think of academic scholarships and awards named after business leaders or the nonprofit sector. We've got, we name people to honor their accomplishments. And a lot of these people are flawed characters. So, I mean, do we, what do, what do you, what do we think we should do? There was, there's some suggestion as well as the plaques about maybe taking these statues and putting them all in one place in a museum, for example. I mean, some of them are so offensive and so hurtful to some people. So do we just ignore it then? Well, I don't think we we ignore it, but I think we need a wider conversation on, on what to do with these. Um, And often you've got areas that have multiple statues on. And so you do keep them sort of in in one spot or maybe you take them off of public lands and and you just put them into museums. I know uh, in Halifax they've created a commission to figure out what to do with the statue of Cornwallis. Uh, My understanding is that's what the Montreal mayor has advocated is uh is something similar in toronto the the statue of john a mcdonald but statues of other prime ministers on queen's park have all been put under protective uh barriers because of a fear of of vandalism i don't think that's what we want uh, a society to to look like one conversation has certainly started and will continue. Thanks for your and, and there's very little middle ground. <laughs> oh, there so is, true, Dwayne. Seems to not be the case. Thank you so much. Okay. See you guys. That is Dwayne Bratt, political scientist with Mount Royal University. Text line is open for you. Your comments already rolling in. If you'd like to comment on this, 403-974-8255. We'll get to your texts about an hour from now and read all that you have to say on it. It is 817. It is time for helicopter traffic now, and it's brought to you by West District by Truman. Main Street's highlight 20-foot sidewalks and integrated bike paths.
7.50 in the High River District Healthcare Foundation is hosting a big screen harvest party featuring George Canyon and Aaron Pritchett. This is going to be super fun, but there's an ulterior motive as well. Joining us with details is Kathy Cooey from the High River District Healthcare Foundation. Hi, Kathy. Hi, thanks for having me on this morning. Well, thanks for joining us. This is going to be really fun. We need a little excitement. We need some entertainment. Yes, things are being done differently, but uh, we'll get to the concert details. This really is an important fundraising initiative, though, isn't it? It absolutely is. Normally, this time of year, we are planning for our large uh, gala event, our dinner and auction event, and and obviously that's not possible this year. So we had to put on our thinking cap and, and as you said, come up with uh, some unique and creative way in which we can continue to support our local health care team uh, with a fundraising event. So how far in advance did you plan this? Because I know that, it, you know, our whole world's been turned upside down. You had to look at an alternative. So when did you get the wheels in motion for this? Well, yeah, we put the we put the, the brakes on uh, with our dinner and auction in the spring. And we really started to revisit this kind of mid-July. Uh, we're very fortunate here in High River that uh, we had a brand new drive-in theater just open up this uh, or later this summer. And uh, we learned, we, we thought pretty quickly on that it would be a great venue to uh to partner with. It's important to us being a healthcare foundation that we, we abide by all the rules, we keep people safe, and, uh, and that was really key. So this is a great venue to be able to do it at. We looked at some different models. Would we serve dinner to people's cars? Would we just have a movie? And then it just happened one of our team members sent the right text to the right person and uh, offered us George Canyon and Aaron Prechette to put on a big screen concert with them. So COVID-friendly country concert. Tell us how it works, how it looks, and how we get into it. Absolutely. So it's going to be, uh, there'll be a stage there with the, uh, both Aaron and George performing on there with their bands. It'll be broadcast on the big screen and you'll listen to it through your FM radio. So uh, really simple, like lots of the concerts that have been working uh, uh, throughout uh, the summer. You, you pull up, you get your stall, uh, turn on your radio, sit back and enjoy, and when it's over you pull out. Uh, the intention is to keep people in their vehicles. They're short concerts meant for everyone's comfort. Um, we do have facilities available should they be required, but the intention is you pull in, enjoy the concert, and then you leave and go home. Tickets available starting next Friday, is that right? Next Friday, 10 a.m., and you can get those by visiting highriverhealthfoundation.ca. There's VIP passes, a limited number for 125 per vehicle, or general admission at $80 per vehicle. Fantastic, Kathy. I know there's an online auction as well, a 50-50 raffle. So all of that at the website, tickets, and a whole lot of fun coming our way. Absolutely. We're looking forward to a great night and, and, uh, and uh, lots of people uh, jumping on our bagway and helping out our local health care team here in High River and Nanton. So important. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's Kathy Cooey. High River District Healthcare Foundation. Again, it's highriverhealthfoundation.ca.